Once again, how many appreciate the music of is it RMD? There you go. Very good. Anytime I make a mistake, I'm trying to uh, become a man about it, own up to it, admit when I'm wrong. And I was corrected last week. If you were here, I told a story about Tom Ferner. I led you to believe that it was true. That's not what I'm going to apologize for. I was corrected later and told that uh, Tom was not a Marine that he was a Navy SEAL. So with much apologies, I, I just want to apologize for that. But, but what I did, it, it did explain something else to me. It, it, it did explain why he continues to bark out loud every now and then. <laughs> so anyway, just wanted to make sure I corrected that, clarified that. Okay, how many of you like to make decisions? Just can't wait to make decisions. Whatever it's about, I mean, just, you found that making decisions can cause you a whole bunch of anxiety in life. How many of you found that making decisions can cause some anxiety? All right? How many of you found that making decisions can cause just about anything but create joy in your life? All right? Well, I'm on target here. How many of you found that when you're attempting to make such decisions that life can get a little bit complicated? I love this cartoon that I saw. I think you'll appreciate it. It's a... Uh, it's one of those Peanuts cartoons, and, and Lucy's philosophizing about life with Charlie Brown. And she's looking at him, and, and it's kind of a progression of thought. And she says, Charlie Brown, life is a lot like a deck chair. See, some place it so they can see where they're going. Some place it so they can see where they've been. And some place it so they can see where they are at the present moment. Charlie kind of sighs for a second, and he goes, you know what? And I can't even get mine unfolded. <laughs> I kind of like that, you know? Many of us are like that, you know? It's just like, I can't even get mine unfolded. Dilemmas have the potential, these decisions have the potential of just robbing all the joy out of our life. And so what we're going to concentrate on today is choosing joy through life's dilemmas. Somehow or another, when we're in a position where we have to make decisions, we're, we, we need to get to the point where we learn how to choose joy through the decision-making process. Because I think that dilemmas can become, without question, some of our most demanding joy bandits. What do you do when a case could be made for going one of two directions, and either one of them could be equally valid? Let me give you some examples kind of familiar dilemmas that I think most of us can relate to. And, uh, and, and, and most of us can identify with the fact that, you know what, when we're going through this, I'll tell you what, sometimes there's not a whole lot of joy in the process. The first dilemma is this. What we call, let's call it a volitional dilemma. That means that you're going to make a decision. You've got a choice to make. You can go either direction. And either way that you go could be equally right or wrong. For example, you can be... You can do two different things. Either one of them could be right or wrong, but you realize that you can't do them both. You can't have it both ways, and so you're either going to be miserable about it, and you're going to pout about it, or you're going to find some joy in the midst of all of it as you choose one way or the other. For example, there's many young people, as they first get married, they want to have certain goals fulfilled. Maybe it's financial goals. Maybe they're going to college or whatever it is, and yet they want to have children at the same time. And so they're stuck with this decision, this volitional decision of, do, uh, do we have children and start our family now? 
Do we wait until after he's out or she's out of college? Uh, do we wait until we have so much money set aside? Uh, what do we do here? Do we have children now or do we wait? But if we wait, we're going to be older and it's going to be longer. And, and do, you know, what do we do here? You know, and, and in either case, there's nothing right or wrong necessarily about the decision. You could do either one. But that type of decision can steal and rob the joy out of your life if we allow it. Another volitional decision. This happens often in churches where a person's not happy with the church that they're going to. They're not happy, but they've been there a long time. They've got a lot of friends. They're kind of trenched in, you know, and they're comfortable, but yet they don't like the direction that things are going. They, they, you know, there's just something missing as far as that whole experience. So they're struggling with, do we leave or do we stay? And, gee, we've been here longer than the people that are changing things, and why shouldn't they go? Or do we voice ourselves in a constructive manner, or do we voice ourselves, or do we stay and try to make change, or we, do we just go somewhere else where God leads us that we can get plugged in and be supportive and go that direction 100%? A volitional decision. You could do either way, and, and, and that, not necessarily are you going to find that one answer is right over the other. I was talking to some friends that are in the process of free agents of trying to sign contracts. And what's interesting is that, you know, you get a couple of different options. And sometimes when you have choices, it's even worse than if you had no choice at all. You know, we're talking to a guy that, you know, had six teams that might want to sign him. And they're all over the country, but there's different dollar values and there's different playing, you know, as far as position and how they would be used and, and how they would fit into a certain defensive scheme. And do I go there and maximize my talents? Do I go there and just take the most amount of money? Do I stay here and stay close to friends and family? Man, I got all these decisions to make and sometimes that's harder to make and many of us have been there. You get two or three job opportunities. Which one do you take? And, what, and what's hilarious, and, 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 I, and in no way do I lose the sense of irony to all this, but I've had many friends who signed when they came to play for the Rams that they had a choice between signing for one team and signing for the Rams. They signed for the Rams. The other team that they didn't sign with ended up going to the Super Bowl. <laughs> you know, and talk about losing a little joy in the process, huh? It's kind of like you start looking back in hindsight, did we make the right decision and how do we come to that conclusion and what's going on here and see there's a couple of choices. We see it all the time with high school athletes that have two, two choices. Do I do, do I do one sport or the other sport? And they both happen to be going at the same time. And what happens is when obstacles and trials and, and, and difficulties come up, the first thing that we begin to do is second guess ourselves and say, oh man, I should have done the other thing. Oh, why is that? Because we've run into some obstacles. I should have signed with this team. I could have went to the Super Bowl. Well, let me ask you a question. Why did you sign with the other team? What was the process that you went through? How did you make your decision? How did you come to your conclusion that what you were doing was right in the first, first place? So I can just see the Apostle Paul as he was thrown in prison in Philippi saying to himself, but, but how did I end up in prison? Was this really God's leading? Did he really want me to come to this city or should I have gone to another city? But he never questioned that because he knew without a shadow of a doubt that he did the right decision, that he followed God's leading in this whole process because if you go back through in Acts 16, you'll find out that he wanted to go north, he couldn't go north, he wanted to go south, couldn't go south, he wanted to go east, he couldn't go east, and that all that was left was going west. So he didn't have to question whether or not did I make the right decision or not. See, many of us struggle with these volitional decisions and we begin to second-guess ourselves as we make these decisions because they didn't turn out like we thought they would and therefore maybe God wasn't in it. And we lose all the joy in our life because of it. Another decision is that of an emotional decision. An emotional decision basically is a lot more intense, obviously, as it involves our emotions, but it's about the same event and you have conflicting emotions. 
Now we see this often with young families, young couples who want to stay home. One wants to stay home and take care of the children. Uh, one wants the two incomes. And I saw this on a special on Dateline the other night. I don't know if any of you saw it. I think it was Dateline or some news program. But, but, but the problem was they were trying to show the economic fallacy of two income families, which I thought was amazing that they would show that on secular television. But the point that they brought up was, is, you know what? Listen, from an economic standpoint, let me show you how you're better off staying home with your children. And, they, and, they, and they, they nailed it, man. I mean, they showed it. Dollar for dollar, everything that was going on to where this couple's sitting there. And she says, you know what? Let me give you some advice. You would be better off quitting work and staying home with your children. Now, the economic sense was there. But you know what became? It was a problem of the emotions. See, really, that decision, more than anything, is more emotional than economic. Because the economic fallacy is easy to point out, particularly with people who don't have very high-paying jobs. But an average job paying an average wage, it's easy to show that. But the emotional trauma is there. Well, yeah, I know that's what it says, but, we, but that, can't be, that can't be right. Oh, so the emotional drainage there. So we see that. On, I'll give you another illustration. We've got a neighbor who has a dog. Now, I'm not trying to say this dog is old. But I know that this dog was on Noah's Ark. No question about it. This dog is old. This dog just kind of wanders like aimlessly throughout the neighborhood. You know, and it walks up to cars and thinks it's sniffing a dog. You know, and it, it can't see. It's just, I mean, it can't see. It can't hear. It's just, you know, and I, and I know what they're going through here. The, they're, the one side of them says, you know, it's time that, that Annabelle goes night-night. You know what I mean? But we don't want to make that decision. So we're hoping one of the neighbors runs this sucker over in the street. I think that's what they're thinking. They've never come out and really said it. They haven't put up little flyers at the mailbox. Please run over our dog. They haven't done any of that. But, but I know what they're thinking is, you know what? But, but we, can't, we can't take the dog and take it night-night. And they're wrestling with this. One side says, I know we've got to put this dog to sleep. But oh, we can't do it. It's emotional turmoil that goes with it. You know, it's interesting, if you want to really intensify the emotion, now take that a next step up when we're dealing with our children. Some of us and some of you have children or brothers or sisters or family members that are struggling with alcohol addictions, drug addictions, uh, struggling with being lazy and not owning up to their responsibilities as an adult. And we're struggling with this, how do we help them, how don't we help them? If, if we continue to do what we're doing, are we really helping them or not? And that's an emotional, I mean, you talk about emotional turmoil that can just rob the joy out of a person's life. Go through that whole decision-making process. So we need to understand that, that these familiar dilemmas are things that could really rob us of joy. How about geographical dilemmas? I like that. Geographical dilemmas. Now, there's some of you who are here, and if you're not, I know where you are. It's a geographical dilemma. I, I, I'd like to be at church, but I'd like to be golfing. I, I'd like to be two places at once. How do we rectify such a dilemma? I know. Would you order me the tape? <laughs> That's how that works. I know how that works. It's kind of like, and I listen to it while I'm playing golf. Oh, no, you won't, because you feel about guiltier about being on the golf course. So we, got, you know, we wrestle with these things. You know, how can you be at two places at one time? Well, you know, a lot of times we can't. give you a personal example of this. A few years back, I'm managing a Little League team. We're 14-1. and one. We're going into the tournament at the end of the year. 
my in-laws, of all the weekends, they decide to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary. <laughs> you think they would have had a little foresight 50 years before that to work this out. Now, I'm thinking, how can we do both? The one is here in Southern California, the baseball games. The 50th wedding anniversary celebration is in Pennsylvania <laughs> at the exact same time with a three-hour time difference and a five-hour flight to boot. So we're running into a real dilemma here. We got a decision to make. You know, I'm being the guy that I am and the way that men think, I'm thinking to myself, hey, I missed the first 35, what's one more? <laughs> no, 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 didn't say that at all. Uh, and we're still married, so you know where we went. <laughs> and, and to this day, that baseball team I managed that my son played on that, had, that, that wanted to come with me to the 50th wedding anniversary celebration, we lost one game all year. We lost a doubleheader that day and got knocked out of the playoffs. And the two guys who are assistant coaches of mine, they have not yet to this day ever lived it down. And I'm going on record and putting it on this tape just to remind them, and I'm going to send a copy to them. You guys choked. <laughs> anyway, hey, that's all water under the bridge, and I don't even think about it anymore. <laughs> but we've all had to wrestle with geographical dilemmas before. I mean, if you have more than one child playing sports, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You got a soccer game going here and a baseball game going here, or you got three sons or three daughters playing different sports all at the same time, all in different places. Well, can I can do everything. Well, you can't. And you have to make decisions. And we have to learn how to make decisions. And when we learn how to make a decision, we have to learn how to live with the decision. We have to learn how to choose joy in the midst of the decision we made instead of allowing it to rob the joy from our life. So this is basically what we're going to look at, familiar dilemmas, uh, you know, how do we choose joy in the midst of all of that. Now I'm aware that there's a lot of crossover between all these because obviously geographical dilemmas can be emotional dilemmas, can be volitional dilemmas, can be all of that. But it kind of helps isolate the fact that all of us have to make decisions at some point and many of us you know, are left pouting and being miserable about it and not choosing joy. And so what we're going to do is learn how to choose joy. I'll give you an example. In Philippians 1, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Philippians 1, starting with verse 21. We're going to finish up this particular chapter. And let me reintroduce yourself to a gentleman who understood all of these things. He understood what it meant to choose joy in the midst of making decisions. And at this point, he's in prison in Rome. He's waiting to have a hearing before Caesar as far as his faith in Jesus Christ. He looks back in his time that he had with the Philippians and he looks back with fond memories and he doesn't dwell on the negative things that happened to him. He looks back and he's convinced of God's control in all circumstances, that God is behind everything that's going on. He's either in control of everything or he's in control of nothing and we're on our own. He's convinced that God's behind everything. He looks back and he, and he realizes he's committed to the gospel regardless of whatever else happens around him, no matter whatever anybody else does or says, that he's committed to Christ and following him and he's not influenced by the pressures of other people. He looks and he says, you know what, I'm controlled by Christ in everything that I do, everything that I think, everything that I say. And so as we go through this, he brings us back to this particular point where now he's going to share with us a personal dilemma that he is now going through in order to help us to identify how to choose joy through life's dilemmas. And we read this, starting with verse 21 of chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. 
But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And convinced of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you, with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too is from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to suffer in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. As he concludes this particular section, he's going through and he's reminding them of the fact that they need to choose joy in life. You know, one of the things that I'm convinced of is that many of us have a tendency to be negative. We have a tendency to think negatively. We have a tendency to react negatively as a result. What goes in is what comes out. Garbage in and garbage out. And negative thoughts breed negative actions. And so what he's trying to do is convince them and to help them to understand when we choose to be joyful in our, all life's experiences and through life's dilemmas, we will also, the way that we conduct ourselves will be a result of how we think. What, who, what we think is what will be. That's why Jesus oftentimes warned when he said, you know, it's out of the heart or the thoughts of man that precedes all evil actions. If you're thinking anger and envy, if you're thinking resentment and hatred, then murder will result. If you're thinking lustful things, then, then, then lustful things will result. So it's real easy to see how what we think is what we end up doing. And he goes through and he says, you know what, what happens is we begin to doubt whether the things that we're going through are really from God or not. You know, why is this happening to me? What's going on? Is God really in control? I ran across the little cartoon that I liked. Now, you know what, this, this exposes a lot about the kind of person that I am. But I ran across this and I thought, you know, this is hilarious because many of us begin to doubt when we're going through difficult times, is God really in this? And there's going to be people that come into our life who are going to try to, to steal that joy from your life knowing that God is in control. They're going to put doubt in your mind that, hey, you're on your own. God doesn't care about you. God had nothing to do with this. You got in this on your own mess. And we need to recognize that those joy bandits are going to come into our life. And what's exciting to me is, here's, a, here's an illustration of that. Daniel finds himself thrown into a lion's den. And the reason he got thrown in there was because there was an edict that was set out through the land that said, you will not pray to your God anymore. And Daniel said, I'm going to continue to pray to God. And so as a result, Daniel kept praying to God. And as a result, he was arrested and he was thrown into a lion's den. Okay, this is the scene in the lion's den. There's Daniel, he's asleep against the wall, he's surrounded by lions. One of the lions stands up and says, okay, on three, everybody roar, and let's give Daniel a little start. Now think about that for a second. You know, many of us are like that. It's like, Daniel's totally convinced that God's in control, he's kicking back in the middle of all these lions, and he's sleeping, and the lions are trying to get up enough of them to, to roar loud and kind of scare Daniel. Let's shake him up. So Daniel wakes up and says, whoa, 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 wait, I thought I was in the right place. See, we got a whole bunch of lions in our life who are trying to surround us to try to convince us, hey, you're not where God really wants you to be, and you're in us on your own. 
And what Paul's trying to tell us is, no, don't, don't ever let anybody tell you that. Because even when we're faithless, God is faithful and we're never on our own. And God is always there with us. He's always by our side. He's always called alongside of us. And, and, and he always wants his purposes to be accomplished through whatever it is that we're going through. And we need to recognize that. So in this particular passage, Paul shares a dilemma with us. Look what it is. His personal dilemma, which seems like a choice, is, hey, you know what? Do I leave or do I stay? Do I leave or do I stay? I like that. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in this flesh, well, if I am to live on in this flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I don't know which to choose, but I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for you. And I've got a personal dilemma here, and it looks like I'm struggling with a decision from the outside. His dilemma is, do, do I go? And what he's talking about is, do I die or do I stay? Interesting dilemma. Do I die or do I stay? That's the question. In 1 Corinthians 5.8, we know this. We are of good courage, I say, and, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. What he's discussing is a very practical thing that many of us go through in life at, diff at different times, and that is this. How many of you ever get to the point in life where you're just sick of living? And you're kind of going, you know what? Heaven is sounding better to me every day. I'm struggling. Heaven's sounding really good. But the problem is, as we go through this, and let me kind of break it out so there's a thought here that makes sense. But in verses 22 through 26, what he's saying is, he's come to the conclusion that it was necessary for him to remain on earth. It's necessary to remain on earth. You know, let me tell you why a lot of us don't have joy in life. And I found this to be true, particularly of new Christians. People who have just come to a relationship with God for the first time, they didn't understand that it was by putting their faith and trust in Christ. They've done that, and all of a sudden now they're alive spiritually. They're seeing things that they've never saw. They're hearing things from God that they've never heard. They're reading the Bible and it makes sense. Oh, man, I'll tell you what. What happens is this. Everything in life pales with the comparison of what God has in store for us in the future. And you, buy, you get a whole bunch of people who all of a sudden say, life isn't worth living anymore, and they lose that sense of urgency to accomplish the things here on earth. One of the biggest knocks that I saw with professional athletes was, oh, that person became a Christian, and now he's no longer intense on a football field. That person became a Christian, and no longer are they intense or as hardworking as they used to be in business. That person became a Christian and now they're almost worthless here on earth. They're so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And in many cases, that is a very true indictment. Because everything in life pales in comparison. But what Paul is saying is this, is he's saying as great as heaven is, I've come to the conclusion that it's necessary for me to stay on earth because i got some work to do. I'm here for a purpose. See, if we weren't left here for a purpose, then the moment that you receive Christ and you become a child of God, He might as well take you to be with Him. But He doesn't do that. You see lunatic fringe people that say, I'm selling everything, we're moving on a mountaintop and we're waiting for Jesus to come back and pick us up. 
Well, what are you supposed to be doing in the meantime? See, what Paul is saying is, hey, let me tell you something. I found it necessary to remain here on earth. And we're going to take a look at that. Let me just share with you some things about this that we need to look at. He says, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I don't know which to choose. It sounds like he's trying to make a decision. Many of us don't have joy in life. Listen to me. Many of us have no joy in life because we haven't got to the point where we understand that many, if not most, decisions in life are not really ours to make, but they're God's. Many of us have no joy in life because we haven't come to the understanding that most decisions in life are not ours to make, but they're God's. And the only way we learn that is when he takes it totally out of our control to the point where there's nothing that we can do about it. I'm so frustrated there's nothing I can do. See, what he's saying is, hey, you know what? I need to explain something to you. I got a decision to make, but it's really not my decision anyway. It's God's decision. Remember where he is. This guy's on trial. He may be found guilty. He may be executed. It's not his decision to make one way or the other. And many of us don't understand that. Here we are in business. You may be working for a company, and you're going to be acquired by another company. You may work for a company, and it's going to be shut down, and you're going to lose a job after a whole bunch of years working in one place. And you know what? It's not your decision to make one way or the other. It's just going to happen, and it's in God's hands. And either you accept that, or you fight that. You're going to have a decision to make. You may be laid off. It's not yours to make. We got decisions in the business all the time. People owe us money. You know what? I think it's my decision to go collect it. I may have to make an effort to do it, but you know what? The bottom line is it's God's decision whether or not he wants us paid. And if we don't understand that, we get real frustrated, and there's no joy in our life. Some of that, I see that very often in athletics where a coach makes a decision. Why? Because he's an authority. You may agree or not agree with him. It doesn't really make a difference. But the reality of it is he's in the position to make that decision. And he may say, you're not going to play. He may say, you're not even going to make the team. He may say, we don't want you. We're waving you. We're, we're, we're trading you. We don't want you here anymore. And guess what? It's not a, that player's decision to make one way or the other. Does he have any control in it? Maybe to a certain degree. If he goes out and works hard, if you're an employee and your company's going to cut back, you know what? They may keep all the people who work hardest but they still may not. You have some control from the standpoint that I'm going to go work hard and do the best I can. But if I still get laid off, if we still get terminated, whatever, it's still in God's hands. I'll go out and play as hard as I can on the field. But if I don't get to play, it's not my responsibility to make that decision. It's all in God's hands. Either God's in control of everything or he's in control of nothing. And there's joy in understanding and in knowing that. But what's even more important is this. He says this. There's one decision that God makes that no human being has the right to ever make, and that is the day that we die. It wasn't Paul's decision to make. It is appointed for man to die once, and then comes judgment. Whether we accept this or not, God is the one who gives life, and God is the one who takes life. And I'll tell you what, you talk about people who are struggling with no joy in their life, they're people who are trying to make decisions that only God is really the one who can make. The Dr. Kevorkians of the world, the people that he preys upon who are going through difficult times in life, who are trying to play God and decide, no, I'll decide when I go. I'll decide how I go. I'll decide why I go. 
You talk to people that have no joy in their life, I'll tell you what, you talk to someone like that and then you talk to somebody else who's suffering, who is dying, but has joy in their heart because they know God is in control and you got two drastically different pictures of a similar problem. We need to recognize the fact that, you know what, Paul was content and joyful in the knowledge that God was in control of all things. And he's the one that said, and you know what, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purposes. We know that, we're convinced of it beyond a shadow of a doubt, that all things, everything that you're going through, every area of life, whether it's business, whether it's at home, whether it's with a child, whether it's in school, whether it's uh, you know, in a community or in a nation, we know that all things work together for good to those who are called according to God's purposes. We know that. We can be convinced of that. He was willing to stay because he realized it wasn't his choice to make. He wasn't even asking, do I stay or do I go? And here's why. Turn back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 for a second. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at this conclusion he comes to. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. I love this. He says, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. So, okay, while we're here on earth, in these bodies, we're not in God's presence. He says we walk by faith at that point, not by sight. We don't see him. We don't hear him verbally. We can hear him through his word and the directions he gives us, but we can't see him. I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I'll be up front with you. I have never seen Jesus. I know he's real. I know that he lives. I'm convinced of that. His spirit bears testimony with mine that I'm a child of God. I'm convinced with the, beyond a shadow of a doubt. But at this point, it's all by faith and not by sight. He says, we're of good courage. And I say and prefer rather to be absent from this body so I can be present with the Lord. He goes, therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether we're at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one of us may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Let me just sum it all up right here. Here's what he's saying. We have as our ambition the reason to live, the reason to stay, is that whether I'm at home or I'm absent, I'm here to please God. In City Slickers, the first movie that came out, there was a big play on this particular scene about finding that one reason that we're all here on earth. It's just one thing. If you remember the scene, it's just one thing. And he goes, well, what is that one thing? And they were going back and forth throughout the whole movie. What is that one thing? Oh, you'll know it when you find it. As if that one thing's different for all of us. That one reason to live. We'll go home today with this one thing whether we are here or on earth, or whether we are in the presence of God himself. There's one reason, one ambition, one motivation to live our life, and that is to please him in everything that we do. Self-test. Do you please him in how you conduct yourself in your marriage? Do you please God in how you conduct yourself as a father, as a husband, as a businessman or a businesswoman? Do you please God in how you conduct yourself on an athletic field? 
Do you please God in how you conduct yourself in a classroom? Do you please God in how you conduct yourself in the community? Do you please God in the way that you conduct yourself? Because our ambition, there is no other ambition in all of, earth, all of life than to please God in everything that we do. The first priority, the first commandment in life is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. To just give it all. To sell out for Him, to please Him in everything that we do. Is that your ambition in life? Do you please God in everything that you do? Or when you look and you ask yourself a question, maybe there's a little more I could be doing. And what are you waiting for? See, Paul came to the conclusion that there was a decision to be made, but it wasn't his decision. But his desire, if you go back through and go back to Philippians, look at his desire is this. It says in the King James, I'm in a strait betwixt two. I'm being held together out of the two. It looks like he's saying, I'm hard-pressed, verse 23, from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. You notice what he's saying? It seems like he's in a turmoil. Do I stay here? And then think about it. He's, and most of us, the only time that we want to go to heaven is when things are going bad here on earth. Right? I mean, the only time people think about, hey, Jesus coming today is because they're going to have a crappy day. <laughs> and they're looking to get bailed out. I mean, most people are like that. Is that really your hope? Do you long every day that you, one day, that today will be the day that Jesus comes back? Many of you probably even thought about it until I just brought it up. Unless you're having a bad day. Then you thought about it. And he's saying is this. He goes, I'm stuck between two. It's kind of like I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. I've got this personal dilemma. Do I go and be in heaven where there's no more pain, no more suffering, no more sadness, no more sorrow? I'm going to be in the presence of the Lord. It's going to be awesome. First Peter says that no matter what you think of heaven, it'll never disappoint you. It'll be better than anything you ever thought it would be. Or do I stay here? Now, he's in prison at the time. He's chained to a Roman soldier at the time. He's just gone through a whole bunch of bad stuff that we'd like to say, and he's in prison, and he's still wrestling with, should I go or should I stay? Well, here's what he says. You know what? It's going to be better if I go, but it's really necessary that I stay. Okay? Now listen. His desire was to go to be with the Lord, but he also knew it was necessary that he stayed. Now, when you read this, you say, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. Here's what it sounds like. I don't know what to choose. Either one would be okay. Which could I choose? Well, I remember this. He didn't have a choice, so that's not the issue. He wasn't wrestling with whether it was better to go to heaven because he already said, that is very much better. Heaven's a lot better than what I'm going through now. Well, then what does it mean? I'm stuck between the two. Here's what it means. Literally, it means in the Greek text, this is what it means. These two thoughts are what hold me together in this life. See how it changes how you look at that whole passage? These two thoughts, what two thoughts? Being in the presence of the Lord or staying here on earth and still feeling the presence of the Lord as I serve Him. What's holding Him together is this. Listen, folks, I don't know if you've ever thought of this or not, but what He's saying is this. These two thoughts are what hold me together. You know why? Because I can't lose either way. I can't lose either way. If I die and go to heaven, that's great. If I stay here, no matter what happens to me, I'm convinced of this, and I'm choosing to be joyful in this. God is in control of everything, and I can still feel his presence in the midst of everything it is in life that I go through. That is what's keeping them together. 
Those two thoughts are what's holding them together, meaning this. Those two thoughts, what I would say is this. Those two thoughts are what keeps me from going nuts. I don't know what keeps you from going nuts, but every day is a challenge in life. Some days are easier to live through than others. Other days are very difficult. But you know what keeps me from going nuts? Knowing we can't lose. If we die today, we go to heaven. If we live today, we still feel the presence of the Lord in every situation in life because God's totally in control of everything. And you know what? I don't know about you, but I can't help but smile when I understand that. How about you? Amen. Thank you. That's appropriate. That was good timing. <laughs> but see, you see what's going on here? Let me, let me, let me help put it kind of all together as this. We all have decisions to make in life. But when we seek God's wisdom in making that decision, when we seek God's direction and trust in the Lord with all our heart, don't lean on our own understanding. In every way, acknowledge Him. He'll direct our path straight. Uh, when, we, when we look at Scripture as far as what is right and what is wrong, and we do what is right, I'm going to tell you something, and it's a truthful statement, and it's not boasting in any way. But for many years of my life, I second-guessed every decision I ever made. It would drive me nuts. If things didn't turn out like I thought they would based on the decision, I must have made a wrong decision. In the last several years, I've come to this conclusion. If I seek God's wisdom, if I seek the word of God for direction, if my wife and I talk about certain things that we're going to decide to do one way or the other and we're in agreement and all those things line up and we make that decision, no matter what happens from that point on, we know we made the right decision. Why? Because God's hand was in it. You talk about joy in your life. And then we move on. Now, it may not have turned out any way like we thought it was going to turn out, but that didn't change the fact that God was in it. And it doesn't change the fact that God is still in control. And it doesn't change the fact that God is still leading us in a proper direction. I'll tell you what it does, man. It, 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 it saves you from the second-guessing bandit who wants to steal all the joy in your life. And when I have a, a guy say, man, you know what? I should have signed with so-and-so because the Steelers went to the Super Bowl. I just asked him the question, what process did you go through to make the decision? We prayed about it. We, 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 we sought counsel, godly counsel about it. We searched the word of God about it. My wife and I talked about it. We prayed about it. We came to that conclusion together and we signed with the Rams instead of the Steelers. And I look at him and say, then why do you think that you made a wrong decision? Because it didn't turn out like we thought. Well, yeah, but God's hand's still in it and he's still in control and you can still choose to be joyful in the midst of it because look at what he's doing in your life in the middle of all of this. You see how that works? I like that. But you also ask this question, and I want to close with this thought. How can anybody on earth be excited about the day that they die? I don't know about you, but there's a whole bunch of people who are sick and who are dying or who are avoiding talking about death because no one's in a hurry to cross that bridge when they get to it. I know people who will fight like heck to stay alive. They'll spend every penny that they've ever made to buy every kind of medication and, and to consult every doctor in the world that they can because they don't like the fact they've just been diagnosed as being terminal and they only have a short period of time to live. They'll spend everything that they've ever made for somebody to tell them, oh, we can get you an extra month. And isn't it ironic to me that here's a man who's saying to, him, saying to all of us, I cannot wait till the day that I die. I am looking forward to it. I'm excited about it. You know why that's true? 
Why do you think he couldn't wait till the day that he died? And it wasn't because he was in prison and didn't like the way life was going because he had already came to the conclusion God somehow or another let him know you're still going to keep on living because there's still work to do. But he was saying, I can't wait until the day I die. You know why? He knew what? Where he was going. He knew what to expect. He knew what was coming up. It says to depart. I like this. The word that he uses, to depart. I'm hard-pressed from both directions having the desire what? To depart. It was a word that was used of Roman armies. The word was used the day they departed was the day they pulled up their tent stakes and they moved on. He was saying, I can't wait till I pull up tent stakes here. By the way, why? Because I'm a stranger. I'm an alien. This isn't, where I'm, this isn't, where, this isn't what it's all about. I'm a citizen of heaven, not a citizen of earth. And you know what? I'm just here on a visa and, and, and not MasterCard. But, um, but I'm pulling up a tent stake and we're moving on. It was the same word that was used of a navy that set sail. They were out in the harbor. The day they set sail was the day that they moved on. What he was saying was there's not anything tragic or violent about death for the believer. He's saying that's the day we pull up tent pegs and we move on to the next location. It's the day that we set a sail and we move on and sail to the next location. Death for the believer is a very sweet thing. It's the day that we leave here to go there. And we know it. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you this, and I wouldn't lie to you, I wouldn't blow smoke at you. I'm going to prepare a place. And since I'm preparing a place, I'm coming back so that you'll be with me. How do you know where you're going to go? Simple. You believe what God says about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That he came to this earth, that he died for your sins. It's not about going to church. It's not about reading the Bible. It's not about giving stuff up. It's not about giving money. All it is is about is believing what God says about Jesus. And he says that when you believe that, you become a child of God to those who believe in his name. For it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God. So no one will ever be able to boast in heaven that they're there because they earned their way there. Every person that will be in heaven is there simply because they put their faith and trust in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. You want to know where you go after you die? It's real simple, folks. All you need to do is believe that Jesus died for you. That's it. There's nothing secretive about this. That's why this is not just good news. It's the greatest news that any person could ever hear. All you have to do is believe that. Paul says, I put my faith and trust in Christ. I believe that he died for me. And because of that, I know that when I'm absent from this body, I'll be present with the Lord. I'm not going past gold, not going to purgatory, not no one lighting candles, not no one praying for me, not no one raising funds here on earth, try to get me over the hump to get me into heaven. I don't have to do all this stuff that the world says i got to do to somehow be pleasing to God. The only thing that's pleasing to God is believing what he says about Jesus Christ and putting our faith and trust in him. Do you want a confidence that when you die that you'll go to heaven? Just believe him. Just believe him. That's all you got to do. Paul did it, and that's why he can say, I can't wait till the day I die. That's why I can say, I can't wait till the day I die either. But you know what? Until that day comes, since it's not my choice to make, there's work to be done. And I'm going to choose joy in the work that's left to be done here on earth because you know what I'm finding out? It's going to be the greatest thing in the world the day I die. But for the people that God wants to bring in my life, it's necessary that I stick around a little bit longer. Now, I don't know how long that's going to be, but at least for today, unless God has me down on his day timer, it's necessary that I stay. You know, I don't know. And I don't really want him to tell me either. You know, because I just kind of like go when he says, come. <laughs> that's it. Let me close with a true story. 
And I like the story because it really kind of summarizes everything. It's a story that was written by Charles Allen, and he tells of a boy named John Todd. And I want you to listen to this because there's a lot of comfort and a joy in the fact that God's in control of all things. It says, shortly after John's birth, the Todd family moved to a village of Killingsworth. And he tells this story, Dr. Allen says, the children in the home had been parceled out among relatives, and a kind-hearted aunt who lived in North Killingsworth agreed to take John and give him a home. With her, he lived until some 15 years later when he went away to study for the ministry. When he was in middle life, his aunt fell desperately ill and realized that death could not be far off. In great distress, she wrote her nephew a pitiful letter. What would death be like? Would it mean the end of everything, or would there be beyond death a chance to continue to live, a chance to continue to grow and to love? Here is the letter that John Todd sent to his aunt in reply. He said, it is now 35 years since I, a little boy of six, was left quite alone in the world. You sent me word you would have me and give me a home, that you would be a kind mother to me, and I have never forgotten the day when I made the long journey of 10 miles to your house in North Killingsworth. I can still recall my disappointment when instead of coming for me yourself, you sent your servant Caesar to fetch me. I well remember my tears and my anxiety as perched high on your horse and clinging tight to Caesar, I rode off to my new home. Night fell before we finished the journey, and as it grew dark, I became lonely and I became afraid. Do you think that she'll go to bed before I get there? I asked Caesar anxiously. Oh no, he said reassuringly. She'll surely stay up for you. When we get out of these here woods, you'll see her candle burning in the window. Presently, we did ride out in the clearing, and there, sure enough, was your candle. I remember you were waiting at the door, that you put your arms close about me, and that you lifted me, a tired and bewildered little boy, down from the horse. You had a big fire burning on the hearth and a hot supper waiting for me on the stove. And after supper, you took me to my new room and you heard me say my prayers and then you sat beside me until I fell asleep. You probably realize why I'm recalling all this to your memory. Someday soon, God will send for you to take you to a new, to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons or the strange journey or the dark messenger of death. God can be trusted to do as much for you as you were kind enough to do for me so many years ago. And at the end of the road, you will find love and a welcome waiting, and you will be safe in God's care. I shall watch and pray for you until you're out of my sight, and then wait for the day when I shall make the journey myself and find you waiting at the end of the road to greet me. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful story. Saying, don't worry about death. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we can have the same joy of experiencing dilemmas in life that Paul had. Don't fear death. If you know Christ, He'll be waiting for you as we make this passage from this life into the next life. We have nothing to fear. Death is not our enemy. Death was conquered once and for all when Jesus rose from the dead. The question was, death, oh, where is your sting? Where is the sadness and the sorrow? There is no more sadness and sorrow. There is no more suffering. There is no more sting. If you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you can have the joy of knowing this that what will hold you together in this life is knowing that the day you die is going to be much better. But the day that you are still here on this earth, there's work to do. And that whether we're absent from this body or whether we're present here on earth, hey, the bottom line is this. Do everything that you can with your ambition to please God. And you always have joy in everything that you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth and what a reassurance it is God, I know that for those of us who have put our faith and trust in you, you tell us that you've given us your spirit to bear witness with our spirit that we're a child of God. 
And God, I also know there are people that are here today that have gone to church or read Bibles or done a lot of things that they thought were going to be what it took to get to heaven. But this whole conversation about death, there's no comfort and there's no joy in it at all for them. I know that and you know that. And God, we just pray that for those who are hearing this, that don't know what would happen to them if they died today, that they would believe you and what you say about Jesus Christ. He says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whosoever would simply believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I just pray that you'll make that real to those who don't understand it, that today is the day that they can get that right with you, that they'll just believe in Jesus Christ. That they'll just pray, God, I don't understand it, but I know that I don't know what will happen to me if I die. And I pray today that I just believe that Jesus died for my sins and I trust you and everything else in life. God, you tell us that a person who prays a simple prayer and sincerity of heart, that they become a child of God to the, those who believe in his name. You tell us that we can have comfort and peace and joy in our life knowing that you're in control of all things. And we just praise you for that. And we just pray that whether we're absent from the body or present, present here on earth, that in everything that we do, we'll do to live to please you. Not because that's what it takes to get in heaven, but that's because that's the great motivation of our life for what you've already done for us. And we just pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.